with someone or, or people that you love? Probably most of us have. It hits close to home. For me as well. A year before I became the pastor of this church, uh, my father died in northeast Indiana of uh, pancreatic cancer. He was diagnosed in November, and he died uh, shortly after Mother's Day the following spring. But uh, that's not the conversation I'm talking about, although I had many a conversation with him that changed after that diagnosis. And I was thankful for the privilege that it wasn't by accident, it wasn't by heart attack. We had time to talk and have conversations that we might not have otherwise had. He was a bit older than my mom, and so he left a a fairly young widow. She was, I was thinking about it, about the age I am now, I suppose, very early 60s. Dad died at 65, pretty young man. And uh, mom handled herself well. Dad set it up, sighted the house, bought her a new car, you know, something that she could manage. Saw it all coming. Took care of everything that he could possibly take care of. And I came from a big family. There were uh, most of my brothers and sisters still living around in the area. Only two of us lived away, so that meant that there were five living in close proximity, checking in on her daily. Sometimes several of them in the same day. I have an older sister who is seven years older than me. And I have a younger sister who is seven years younger than me. So I'm right in the middle. There's a 14-year span there in which my folks were having kids. My youngest sister uh, got a great education, became a nurse, and then she was in charge of hospice care for Huntington County, which is the county in which we lived. And so in her care, she cared for people who were Uh, in those last stages of life. And uh, she came across uh, a man that uh, lost his wife in a very similar way, also about my dad's age. And uh, when it was appropriate, she introduced the two of them, this man who had lost his wife and my mom who had lost her husband. And uh, they fell in love and had a wonderful 15-year marriage. My sisters struggled with that, that somebody would replace their father. But I thought he was actually better for her in retirement than my dad would have been. You know, he liked to go to shows. He liked to go to plays. He was very social. My father, not so much. And so that was a good thing. But as they aged, the two of these, his physical health was not good. He had an enlarged heart and uh, could not move around much without soon having trouble. Mom's body was strong, but she began to lose her mind. And so between them, you know, they had a mind and they had a body and they functioned quite well. When we would go to visit all the way from here to there, uh, he was very protective of my mom. She would be frightened even of her children, you know, unless he would ease us into the situation and explain who we are. Oh, Steve, your son is here to see you, Myra. Isn't that nice? You know, lots of hints along the way as to who this guy is coming into her home. 
But then he died. My mom was not of a mental ability to live alone, suffering from uh, Alzheimer's at that point. And my sisters and the family negotiated uh, a great care facility for her. But it was interesting, and this is the crucial conversation I want to define, uh, how I would go and visit, and um, my mom clearly did not know who we were. I would come in and put her at ease and say, Mom, it's Steve. I'm your son. And at first she'd say, if you say so. (laughs) And we could have a good conversation. But it was like she was talking to a stranger. If her favorite TV program was on behind me, she'd be looking over my shoulder while carrying on a polite conversation, even though I traveled miles and hours to see her. But it really bugged my sisters. In fact, they hung pictures of our family in her room. And a picture of her and my father, most prominent. And uh, they would constantly quiz her about who these people were. You know, trying to help her retain or regain her memory. And when I would go, they would always take me because they thought they could ease me in. She knew them a bit better than she knew me. And she was fearful of men. But I could see this wasn't working. And uh, they would ask who this couple is on the wall. And she would say, I don't know. And she'd say, this is dad. And she says, where's my husband? He was your husband. No, where's, he's not my husband. Where's my husband? She was thinking of the man that she lived with after my dad died for 15 years. And that bugged my sisters. Until finally we had to have a sit down and talk about that a bit. I said, why are you doing that to mom? You know, she has a disease. She won't remember. You're not helping her. You're aggravating her. Why does she remember Roger and not our dad? I said, it's one of the quirks of the mind. It doesn't matter. Mom is happy, and she's in a good place. Why are you doing that? It should be about her, not about you. It was a tough conversation for them to finally accept and take those pictures down and quit aggravating her when she went. It was tough for them to receive it from me. For one thing, I was the long-distance child. They were near at hand. And uh, my older sister felt like she was my second mom anyway, seven years older than me. And my younger sister was the nurse specialist. It really bothered her. Because mom was afraid of her because she had taken care of all of her medication and shots. So she feared her. And I said, so do you want the best possible situation dealing with the reality of the situation? Or do you want to live in denial? Do you want the best possible outcome based on the reality of the situation? Or would you rather live in denial? Human nature doesn't change even over thousands of years. There's a conversation that uh, the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, I believe, uh, has with Abraham. He's called the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, but there's every reason to believe that uh, that was actually God making an appearance on earth because it says uh, the Lord and two angels appeared near the tents of Abraham. The story is told us in Genesis chapter 18, they came for a couple of reasons, really. 
first to just have a conversation with Abraham about the fact that they were finally going to have that long-awaited child. They had promised it uh, to Abraham before uh, the Lord had in a number of conversations, and he began not to believe, and so took upon himself the birth of a child through his Sarah's handmaiden, one of his servants, uh, Ishmael, you may recall. But then the Lord, in chapter 18, appears as though uh, a traveler on the road with two accompanying angels in disguise. And Abraham quickly welcomes them into the tent, asks them if he could feed them and refresh them on their way, and, and they consent, as is the custom. And so he uh, kills a calf, prepares some bread, and they sit down for a, a day-long visit. And then the Lord says, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, who has never made an appearance, he's, she's not been introduced, and, and yet the Lord knows her by name, will have a son. And it says Sarah, who is listening at some distance, uh, laughed to herself. And the Lord, again, all-knowing, said, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I surely have a child now that I am old? Then, as the Lord got up to leave, promising to return and to see that promise fulfilled, it says he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord said to himself, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Meaning to go down and destroy the evil that had marked the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, for he will become great in the land and he should understand what is about to take place. And so then, as you'll see on the screen behind me in verse 20, the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham, is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached my ears. And if not, I will know. And so the men turned away and went toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? not sure Abraham understood the reality of the situation. Abraham was in denial about the face of evil. And in a sense, based on the conversation that transpires, you would think that Abraham knew better than the Lord as to how to handle the situation. And he begins to bargain with the Lord. Will you sweep away the righteous? With the wicked? What if you find 50 people in those cities that are righteous? Will you then spare the city? And the Lord said, if, if I find 50 people, I will not destroy the city. Abraham thought that might be a stretch. He had family living there. He knew how evil the place was. He said, what if you find 45 
We destroy the city for the lack of five, only five. Will that make the difference? And the Lord graciously and probably with some compassion in his eyes and in his visage said to Abraham, no, not for five. I won't destroy the city. If I find 45 righteous, I will not. Well, what about, what about 40? If you find 40, would, would you spare the city for 40? For the sake of 40, I will not do it, he said. May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak once more. What if only 30 can be found? From 50 to 45 to 40, jump 10 to 30, and then 20. And then the last verses is on the screen behind me. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. The question remains, do you want the best possible outcome accepting the reality of the situation, or would you prefer to live in denial, Abraham? And do you trust God's judgment in these things, in our life, in our difficulties, in our negotiation with God? Are we living in denial, wanting the world to be different than it actually is? Or do we pray our prayers as Jesus prayed them in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, Father, here's the situation. Take this cup from me, if at all possible. If there's some other way that salvation can be achieved, make your case. Plead your cause. He graciously allowed Abraham the privilege of negotiation. But then finally... Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Do you trust the Lord? Do you think your judgment is better than his in these difficult situations? Are you willing to lay it at his feet and and know who he is, that he can do all things and there is no end to his love? Therefore, in his power and in his love, I can leave it there in good hands. It appears as though Abraham is more gracious than God. But is that true? To allow evil to flourish, is that grace? Or is it better for more if evil and the wicked be swept away and the righteous remain? There's an incredible chapter in the prophet Ezekiel's writing, chapter 33, where he pleads with the wicked to turn from their wickedness. Son of man, say to the house of Israel, our offenses and our sins weigh us down, and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Your sin is destroying you. Your wickedness is bringing life to an end. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I don't take any pleasure 
in the death of the wicked. I take no pleasure in their destruction, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? But he does not live in denial. He will in those circumstances, in all circumstances, provide the best possible outcome, accepting the reality of the sinful world that we live in leaving it to his discretion, trusting him who sent our Savior Christ and who is, by definition, true wisdom to do that what is right rather than what we wished he would do, which would be to the greater destruction of the world and to us. Later in that same book, he says, But you say the way of the Lord is not just. But it is their way that is not just. If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and begins to live in evil, he will die for his evil. But if a wicked man turns away from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he will find life in doing so. Yet why is it that you say the way of the Lord is not just? I will judge each of you according to the truth. God wants what is best for us, not ignoring the reality of our sinful condition and the sinful world in which we find ourselves. And we can trust him to do that, also at the same time acknowledging that we, like Abraham, are not as discerning as the way of the Lord. What may look harsh in our sight is actually from God's vantage, always right. We pray. Lord, bless us to this end, that we might boldly accept your will for our life, even as Christ in the garden prayed, your will, not his will. Help us to realize that you are approachable, that we can argue our case as Abraham did, but in the end, we know that you will do what is right, and we trust you. And we look forward, Lord, even if it means our death, to eternal life, because you have a larger vantage than we do. Amen. Please rise if you would and 